This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. It's great to be here on the first day of the festival, but also to be introducing the first event in a theme called Conversations with Ourselves. My name is Charles Fernyhoe. I'm a writer and an academic psychologist, and I'm involved in a project called Hearing the Voice, which is based at Durham University and funded by the Wellcome Trust. We're interested in the experience of hearing voices in all the many different contexts in which it happens. And this theme stems from a collaboration between our project and the festival. We thought it would be a very interesting opportunity to put together some events that cover the full range of contexts in which people hear voices, historical, psychological, spiritual and literary Alongside the theme, we have a couple of research projects running. So our researcher, Jenny Hodgson, who's out there somewhere, will be talking to many of the writers as they come through the festival about their experiences of the voices of their characters. And there's also an online study which was launched today on readers in the voices. So it's something that everybody can participate in asking questions about what sorts of experiences you have when you read fiction. Do you hear the voices of characters? Today's event is called The Voices in Our Head, Creating Characters in Fiction, and we're particularly interested in what happens for writers when characters come to them, when writers are working with characters to create a work of fiction, and what happens to those characters after a book is finished. It's often thought that the first sign that a a book is working is when the characters talk back to their author, and of course books, fiction in particular, can depict and articulate voices on the page unlike any other art form. So I'm delighted to be, to be joined by three wonderful award-winning novelists today. We've got Nathan Filer, who trained as a psychiatric nurse and now works as a lecturer in creative writing at Bath Spa University, and whose first book, whose, whose first book The Shock of the Fall, was a worthy winner of the Costa Book of the Year last year. We have Edward Carey, who's a playwright novelist uh, and illustrator, whose novels include Observatory Mansions and Alva and Irva. And today he'll be talking about his new book, the beautifully illustrated by himself, Heap House, which, among many other things, is, a, is an extraordinary work of art. And we're joined by Matthew Quick, whose debut novel, The Silver Linings Playbook, which turned into an Oscar-winning movie with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro. Many of you will have seen it. And whose new book, The Good Luck of Right Now, is an enchanting story of a 30-something ingenue called Bartholomew who starts writing to someone rather famous. (laughs) Each of the authors is going to speak for five or so minutes about their books, and then we're going to go into a bit of a discussion about some of the themes, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. So we're going to start with Nathan. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. It's really nice to be here. We can't see you as well as you can... (laughs) see us, but it seems full, and that's good. Um, So, yeah, we've been asked to do a little reading each. I'm just going to read a short chapter to you, which I I enjoy reading because I think it it shows uh, my character very nicely. My uh, character in this story, the central character, is a young man called 
Matthew Holmes, uh, and he's uh, telling his story. He's writing his story, actually. He's uh, in mental health services himself, and he uh, attends a, a day centre uh, for treatment for his, uh, for his illness every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And, and when he's there, he has access to a, uh, to a computer, and he uses his computer to, to begin to tell his story. Uh, I considered, given the theme uh, of this uh, particular event, to Matthew himself is a voice hearer. He, he probably has an illness uh, uh, called schizophrenia, though he's not diagnosed in the novel, but he is a voice hearer, and I considered reading a, a, a part that deals with that. But then I think actually for me, uh, one of the most important things to remember when we're working with people who hear voices or are psychotic or unwell is, of course, that's one, uh, one part of their experience, but that they are, uh, of course, obviously whole people. Uh, with, with much more to them than, uh, than that. So, uh, so I like reading this chapter because I think it shows Matthew quite nicely. Uh, it's called Hypertonia, noun, a state of reduced tension in muscle. There was the shock of the fall in the blood on my knee and Simon carried me all the way back to the caravan, all by himself, without any help from anyone, even though it half killed him. But he did it anyway. He did it for me because he loved me. I already told you that. And then I said, there is a proper word for weak muscles that I would look it up if I got the chance. And possibly you forgot all about it. But I didn't. I didn't forget. There is a nursing dictionary kept in the office at the top of the back staircase. And I could see it there on the table. I could see it when I went to the office to ask if I could go on the computer for a while to do my writing. It was really funny, though. Because the girl I asked... The young one with the minty breath and the big gold earrings who is forever trying to read over my shoulder, she just kind of froze. She was the only person in the office and she totally froze, as if the nursing dictionary contains all these secrets that patients aren't allowed to know. Seriously, she couldn't even open her mouth. Then a really funny thing happened. Do you remember Steve? I only mentioned him that once. He was the one who gave me the teaching session on this computer. I said I probably wouldn't mention him again. Well, he came into the office next, and the girl turned to him and asked really hesitantly whether or not patients could look in the dictionary. That is how she said it, too. She said, um, um, is it appropriate for patients to borrow the dictionary, Stephen? And you'll never guess what he did. He stepped past her, and in one move, he threw the dictionary back through the air like a rugby pass right into my hand. And at the same time, he said, what are you asking me for? He said it just like that. He said, what are you asking me for? Then he turned to me and winked. But it wasn't even a quiet wink, because he made this little clicking noise with his tongue, as if to say, you and me, kiddo, we're in this together. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. But you can see why it's funny. It's funny because the girl didn't know whether or not I could even look in the dictionary. And then it was doubly funny because Steve made her look really stupid by being all casual about it. But the really funny thing, the thing that makes me laugh out loud, the really funny thing is that Steve made that little clicking noise with his tongue and winked at me as if to show that he was on my side or something. Except you're not on my side, are you, Steve? Because if you were on my side you would have just handed me the dictionary like a grown-up. Because if you make a big fucking gesture of it, Steve, then it becomes a big fucking deal. But that is what these people do, the Steves of this world. They all try and make something out of nothing, and they all do it for themselves. Simon had hypertonia. 
He also had microgenia, macroglossia, epicanthic folds, an atrial septal defect, and a beautiful smiling face that looked like the moon. I hate this fucking place. And if you haven't read Nathan's book yet, it is the most extraordinary, vivid, and moving account of being, I want to say, a service user, but I'd get told off by, by Matt for, for using that word, wouldn't I? There's yeah, so yes. many terms yeah. out there, and yeah. Uh, yeah, service user is one of them. But, uh, but he's a person uh, caught up in mental health services anyway, isn't he? So, yeah. Good. Edward, in your book, there's a character who hears voices. Yes. Um, uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, um, uh, uh, very much everybody who's here. Um, so my, my novel is actually, it's a young adult uh, crossover book and it's set in uh, Victorian London. Um, I live uh, in Texas. <laughs> not quite sure how that happened, but I live in Texas, uh, but I'm not Texan. Um, and living in Texas, I found that I missed England desperately. And I desperately wanted somehow to go back. And one way of going back was to go back to Victorian London, having been steeped in Dickens. Um, and so I started writing a book about um, a, a district of London that never existed, um, where all the dirt of Victorian London is heaped in one place, all the rubbish from one, from all the ghastly city heaped in one place, and in the middle of an enormous rubbish heap uh, is a mansion made out of uh, basically stolen buildings from, from London itself, and in that lives this family called Ironmonger. Um, and the principal character is called Claude Ironmonger, and um, he hears... He hears voices. He hears um, the objects all around, stolen objects, filthy objects, objects of rubbish. He, he hears them, uh, and he hears them speaking to him. Um, and nobody knows quite why to begin with. Um, so I thought I would just read a tiny bit right from early on, and it will probably, it's in his voice, hopefully will explain things a little more. Here he goes. I heard things. Those flesh flaps on the side of my head did too much. Those two holes where the sound went in were over busy. I heard things when I shouldn't. The noises upset me. I was always jumpy and scared and angry. I could not understand the words of the noises at first. At first it was just sounds and rustles, clinks, clicks, smacks, taps, claps, bangs, rumbles, crumblings, yelps, moans, groans, that sort of thing. Not very loud, mostly. Sometimes unbearably so. When I was older, when I could speak, I should keep saying, who said that? Who said that? Or, be quiet, shut up, you, you're nothing but a washcloth. Or, will you be silent, you chamber pot? Because it seemed to me that objects, ordinary, everyday objects, were speaking to me in human voices. It was just names that I heard, only ever names, some spoken in whispers, some in great shouts, some singing, some screaming, some sounded with modesty, some with great pride, some with miserable timidity. And always to me, the names seemed to be coming from different objects all about the great house. I could not concentrate in the schoolroom because the cane kept calling out, William Stratton. And there was an inkwell that said, Haley Bate Burgess. And the globe was rumbling, Arnold Percival Lister. Why do I hear the names? I asked my uncle, who was a doctor. I do not know, Claude. It is something peculiar to you. Shall it stop ever? 
I cannot tell. It might go away. It might lessen. It may get worse. I do not know. Thanks, Edward. And there's a fascinating and compelling story underlying why Claude is hearing the, the voices of these objects. So, Matthew, in your book, you have some good voices and bad voices. I do, I do. Um, the book that I'm promoting right now is uh, called The Good Luck of Right Now. Um, and I, I should preface it by saying uh, that there's kind of a, a mental health slant to all of my novels, and that's not intentional. Um, my first book, The Silver Linings Playbook, when I was writing it, uh, I was convinced that I was writing a novel about American football. And uh, when I finished and I started doing press, I quickly realized that I had written a, a novel about mental health. And um, it was surprising to see how the mental health community really embraced not only the novel, but the film as well. And it was really kind of a coming out for me um, because uh, mental health issues that existed in my, my family for many years. My great-grandmother died in an old-school mental institution, electric shock therapy, really horrible, horrible experience, um, but it was something that we didn't talk about. And so through writing, I was able to uh, kind of talk about all of these things that were um, not permitted, especially in a blue-collar neighborhood outside of Philadelphia in the 80s. And so my novel, The Good Luck of Right Now, um, is about a man named Bartholomew Neal. Um, and for the first 30 you know, odd years of his life, he, he only has a relationship with his mother. He never leaves the home. And when she, she gets uh, a brain tumor at the end of her life, she, she experiences dementia, and she starts to call him Richard. And he's not quite sure why. When she passes, he finds uh, a letter, a free Tibet letter, in her underwear drawer from Richard Gere, and he becomes convinced um, that Richard Gere is going to help him. And so the novel is told completely in one-sided letters from Bartholomew to Richard, Richard Gere, and you never know if um, Bartholomew ever mails them or not. The reason why I set it up that way was because I receive a lot of fan mail, especially after the film, and um, I find that people write to me, and they're not writing to Matthew Quick as a human being. They write to me almost as a concept um, of what they think of as a famous author. And so, therefore, it gives them an excuse to, to tell the truth because they don't think that I'll ever read it. Um, I know this because when my agent forwards me the letters and I acknowledge them, sometimes the people completely freak out when I respond. <laughs> and I often say it's like throwing a penny into a wishing well, and I'm the monster at the bottom of the wishing well throwing it back up and saying, you were heard. And, and, and so when it comes to hearing voices, Bartholomew is, is somebody who is able to tell the truth about what he experiences in, in letters to Richard Gere in a way that he's unable to tell the truth to the people around him whom he feels will judge him. And a lot of times, especially my teen readers, they'll write me these very intimate letters about how they feel different or unwell sometimes or experiencing um, you know, various forms of, of, of mental illness. And they can write it to me as a concept because they feel safe and they won't tell that that story to the people in their lives, which is often sad. And so I wanted to write it in letters because I feel as though um, when you're reading a letter that's not addressed to you, it's almost, um, I use the term emotional pornography. You know, you get to into someone's psyche in a way that you would never be able to get into their psyche if you just met them face to face. And so Bartholomew hears, you know, the voice of Richard Gere, um, and that takes, uh, you know, some funny turns and some sad turns, but he also... Um, Here's some voices that tell him to do things. And he has a strong relationship with a priest. 
And the priest tells him that these are good voices, um, but the question remains whether they are good or bad. So there's a little bit of religion in there as well. Um, I wanted to hear some. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, can you read I, this? You can I can't compete with these it. accents. They're so wonderful. <laughs> I don't know, have I used up my five minutes? No, you've got time to read it a bit if you fancy. Okay. Give, give us a flavor. I'll read the opening. So it opens. Dear Richard Gere, Mr. Richard Gere. In my mom's underwear drawer, I was separating her personal clothes from the lightly used articles I could donate to the local thrift shop. I found the letter you wrote. As you will recall, your letter was about the 2008 Olympics held in Beijing, China. You were advocating for a boycott because of the crimes and atrocities the Chinese government committed against Tibet. Don't worry, I'm not one of those crazy types. I immediately realized that this was a form letter you sent out to millions of people through your charitable organization, but mom was a good enough pretender to believe you had personally signed the letter specifically to her, which is most likely why she saved it, believing you had touched the paper with your hands, licked the envelope with your tongue, Imagining the paper represented a tangible link to you. There may be a few of your cells, microscopic bits of your DNA, were with her whenever she held the letter and the envelope. Mom was your biggest fan and a seasoned pretender. There's his name written in cursive, I remember her saying to me, poking the paper with her index finger. From Richard Gere, movie star Richard Gere. Mom liked to celebrate the little things, like finding a forgotten wrinkled dollar in a lint-ridden coat, coat pocket when there was no line at the post office and the stamp sellers were up for smiles and polite conversation, or when it was cool enough to sit out back during a hot summer when the temperature dips dramatically at night, even though the weatherman has predicted unbearable humidity and heat, and therefore the evening becomes an unexpected gift. Come enjoy the strange cool air, Bartholomew, Mom would say, and we'd sit outside and smile at each other like we'd won the lottery. Mom could make small things seem miraculous, that was her talent. Richard Gere, perhaps you have already labeled mom as weird, pixelated. Most people did. Before she got sick, she never gained or lost weight. She never purchased new clothes for herself and therefore was perpetually stuck in mid-80s fashion. She smelled like the mothballs she kept in her drawers and closet, and her hair was usually flattened on the side she rested against the pillow, almost always the left. Mom didn't know that computer printers could easily reproduce signatures because she was too old to have ever employed modern technology. Toward the end, she used to say that computers were condemned by the Book of Revelations. But Father McNamee told me it's not true, although we could let Mom believe this. I'd never seen her so happy as she was the day your letter arrived. As you might have gathered, Mom wasn't all there during the last few years of her life. And by the very end, extreme dementia had set in, which made it hard to distinguish the pretending of her final days from the real world. One of the things that your wonderful and very funny book does is give us a very different understanding of Richard Gere. <laughs> so, gentlemen, because you're captive, because you've had a glass of whiskey, because you can't go anywhere, we're going to start by asking you the question that we're asking all the authors. Where do your characters come from? How do they, how do they present themselves to you? Who wants to go first? 
Um, uh, for me, draw, for me, writing this this voice, the, 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 there are many first-person voices that come out of this book. In fact, I want it to be the sort of the voice of everybody in this huge mansion. Um, but there are two lead ones. And for me, when I was writing Claude, the the, the principal character, um, I just had this very nervous boy who, who had a huge head and a small body and he stood across you know, totally apart from everybody else um, and I didn't know who he was at first. I always start off by drawing my characters um, and it's a sort of way of, I hear the, I hear the voice slightly, um, I think I have an idea but generally first off there's a, I draw someone, I didn't even mean to draw him and there he would be, this guy with a parting and a big head and a bow tie looking at me, always miserable, invariably miserable um, and so from that, I began to sort of give that drawing a voice. And then suddenly from it came this voice, this boy who couldn't shut up and who heard objects talking to him all the time. And, and the, the, the noises of the objects in, in his head were, were huge. Um, and so for me, that was the easiest character in the world to, to create because I couldn't shut him up. Um, there was no way to, to, to silence him, but, but creating the other characters in the book that went with him was, was, a, was very difficult. And because each of the, the characters that appear have little monologues, um, it was, you know, getting their voice was, was something slightly different. And sometimes I would get the voice and try and paint the picture, and the picture would go, no that voice is wrong or the picture's wrong and they would argue with each other non-stop and I would you're going to go ah what's going on who's right um, and eventually trying to get them to agree with each other it takes a long time for me um, and then finally it's okay but sometimes the, the painting of a character can be you know that thick by the time I've painted over the face again and again this one no this one no but always invariably I can't help it <laughs> a bit miserable. A bit miserable. Um, how about you, Nathan? Do you hear characters, see them, a bit of both? Well, with Matthew, how did Matthew begin? Matthew began with um, a couple of lines that um, I was walking home from. Uh, I was working as a student nurse. I was finishing my uh, uh, training as a student nurse, and I was on a on a placement on an acute psychiatric ward. Um, and I was walking home and two lines started to go around in my head. And I can still remember them. They were, uh, I had no intention of putting up a fight, but these guys weren't to know that and nobody was taking any chances. Mm. I had no intention of putting up a fight, but these guys weren't to know that and nobody was taking any chances. I had no intention of putting up a fight, but these guys weren't to know that and nobody was taking any chances all the way home around and around in my head. And so I had those two lines and a, a sense of the, the, the character who had said them. So I gave him a name straight away. I think that helps when developing a character. Give a name and then there's something real there, isn't there? We have names. So I called him Matthew Holmes, uh, which was just on a whim. I called him Matthew because um, uh, Matthew was going to be my name before my mum took a last-minute swerve at the end of her pregnancy to Nathan, uh, which she did because her mother, uh, who's in the book, uh, as Nanny knew, uh, the real-life uh, grandmother character. Uh, my my grandmother's uh, I, uh, was Irish Argentinian, and she couldn't say uh, she couldn't say Matthew. She'd say Matthew, Matthew. Mm. It drove my mum mad, so she called me Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> How did she get on with Nathan? Nathan for the next Nathan. thirty years. Yeah, it was a terrible, <laughs> it was a terrible strategy. And uh, uh, and Holmes, because I was writing a reading a book by A. M. Holmes at the time, so he had a name. Then I had those two lines. I decided a couple of other things about him. 19 years old, chipped front tooth, tentative diagnosis of schizophrenia, 
dead big brother who wouldn't stay dead. But well, there's the start of something there. So I got home and wrote down those two lines as soon as I got home. I had no intention of putting up a fight. These guys went to know that nobody was taking any chances and then began to, to write the novel. It began with a scene with him being medicated, actually, on a, on a psychiatric ward. Um, if any of you have read the book, you won't have read those two lines because once I'd written all of that, that all went. Uh, and it never made it into the novel, but then the character's there and, there was, and I had a character to, that I could start to work with. So you've talked about uh, it being a process of a gradual learning to inhabit a character rather than some sort of revelatory hearing, you know, hear, hearing the, the yeah. voice from nowhere. I don't bite, I have to be careful, I don't know what Matthew's going to say, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little sceptical of the, uh, I'm sure it happens for some people, but I think that, that uh, line that you sometimes hear authors say, or oh, they just walked into my life fully formed, and I think, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but with Simon, the, the brother, you describe how you sort of felt you got that character, not when you heard him say something, but when you saw him doing something. Yeah, it was, um, um, my, I think I say in a Q&A at the end of the book, don't I, there's, um, uh, on page 240-something, there's a moment <laughs> when, uh, yeah, Simon's just uh, in bed and grinning and his eyes are moving left and right, and I, I mean, I, I can't say it verbatim, but, um, but in that moment, I felt, oh, I could see him, and in, like, in that, and, you know, it's not an especially great sentence, it's not one that you'd, you know, copy out into your notebook, but, um, but I could see him there, and, and, and so then he felt real in, in those moments. Yeah. yeah Matthew, you've got some fantastic characters in your book. Wendy, the Thank kind you. of off-the-rails therapist, Father McNamee, the, uh, the priest, you know, where did they, how do they come to you? You know, I think it's, um, I always say that a novelist, or uh, I should say I, I understand my books years after they're, they're completed, um, you know, I, I think writing a novel is a leap, leap of faith. And uh, I, I write in first person, so I do hear a voice. And, it, and it's not fully formed at first, and it's very similar to what you're describing. Like, you hear them say one or two things, and this voice wants to tell you something. And, and when I'm on to something, it feels like I'm channeling that voice. You know, not to get mystical, but when the writing's going well, it feels very effortless. Um, I, I, I have many, many rough drafts that were abandoned after 30,000 words where I'm just laboring, trying to create this character. But when the voice just comes through, I mean, I have to wait for that voice, and that's, that's very frustrating because in between novels, I want to click into the next voice right away, and I have to wait. Um, my wife is a, a novelist and a pianist, and she keeps a tape recorder and a notebook next to the bed, and oftentimes she wakes up at 3 in the morning and hears a melody, and she hums it into the tape recorder, and she goes back to sleep, and the next morning she, she listens to it, and it's new to her. Like She doesn't remember humming it, or she doesn't remember the notes that she wrote from a novel. Where does that come from? I don't know. Um, when I read my books after they've been edited, and I've had some time away, I, I feel as though I psychoanalyze myself, and I can see little bits of, oh yeah, maybe that was from a conversation you had 20 years ago, or my brother will say, this is me, and we had a conversation that you don't remember. Um, and it's, it's not conscious. Um, you know, my friends and my family members will see things in the novels about me that I didn't see when I was writing it. I don't really know how to explain that. Um, and when I teach creative writing, I'm very careful um, not to say, like, you write a book by doing X, Y, and Z, because um, everybody comes to writing in a different way. And I think that there, whatever you want to call it is inside of you trying to get out, whether it's a voice or an idea. Um, it's, it's not something that's tangible. It's not something that you can describe in a scientific way. 
Um, and, and I know channeling sounds kind of like a, a fluky word, but really that's how it feels. Um, it's not like there's a voice talking to you, but like it's, the voice is kind of moving through you at some points when the writing is going well. And, and that's, that's sadly not all of the time. You know? It really resonates. Can I follow up on yeah, that a ahead. little bit? I mean, it really resonates with me in what you said then about understanding, not understanding your books until sometime yeah. later. And I'm sort of just going through this experience a bit now myself, because there's the things that you you know, deliberately borrow from life, aren't there? Like anecdotes. That it's just, sure. I know that I've done that. So, I don't know, one of mine, the, the dad and Matthew, they call each other mon ami, and my dad and I call each other amigo. It's just like, I borrowed it. So, yep. so it's, but then there's those other things that, yes, you say, that you just don't know. There's kind of, it's not an anecdote, but it's just a, a tension or an unresolved issue or just something that you couldn't put your finger on at all. But this is, I think, for the voices in the head, where does that, when you're sitting there at the keyboard and these ideas come... They come from somewhere. They come from deep in our unconscious mind, don't they? And they're these issues that aren't resolved. That is, it's, it's nowhere else, is it? It has, yeah. to be, it has to be coming from our lives. Well, I mean, you, you could say that it's no one else, but I, I feel as though as we go through life, we glean not only experiences, but ideas, words from, from everyone you meet. So I feel as though in some ways we're just we're these human tape recorders that just take in all of this information and we can't possibly remember it all, but it's inside of us somewhere, and it comes out in these strange ways through fiction. Um, and it's, it's um, you know, a process that you, I don't think you ever fully understand. You know, I read a lot of books by, you know, my favorite authors who write about writing, and, and I've never seen anybody put it, you know, very succinctly to explain that process. But I think you're right. You're not, you don't grab on to a voice. It's those moments when writing works very well that somehow the voice takes over and you don't even know that you're doing most of it. And you're sort of... Those are those kind of rare, beautiful moments when you stop and you look back and, you know, two hours have passed or something and you think, how did that happen? And can it happen again, please? And say, just sit, sit back and don't mess it up, right? Like, yeah. Don't, and don't go on Twitter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's a really interesting question there of control. And I think this often comes up in this kind of conversation are you actually in control of what your characters are doing? Because sometimes you know, a sceptic would say, okay, you say you hear, you hear the voices of your characters. People who really hear voices aren't in control of that experience. Whereas you are an author, you're using your imagination, you're bringing something into being in a voluntary sense. But it probably isn't as clear-cut as that. And very often authors say, well, I don't know what my characters are going to do. They surprise me the whole time. I don't know what they're going to do or say. I'm not in control. How is it for, for you? Well, we surprise ourselves as well, of course, mm. don't we? We can't predict our own future and everything we're going to do. So for me, it's a, yeah, maybe an extension of that. But again, like, ultimately, we do decide, don't we? So again, I'm always quite keen to separate from that sort of mystique because some of it doesn't ring entirely true to me. But, um, uh, but also, I think that like, having a whole, like, just having a whole kind of novel in your head would be a difficult thing to do. So you've got to do the journey with your, with your character. And as you get to know them and circumstance happens, well, then... Well, it's like, well, what would I do with? Mm. And what would this particular character do? Yeah. You know, the way that a yeah. writer tries to bring character and plot together mm. so that plot could make something happen and then you have a character who's responding depending on who they are. I, I, the, the ego in me wants to say that I have total control over everything and that you know, I, I deserve whatever I get for writing a book. But when I look historically at some of my, my favourite writers... Um, you know, like Kurt Vonnegut gets an, an example. If, if he doesn't experience the bombing of Dresden, we don't have Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, you know, they're, they're, that book doesn't exist. Or if J.D. Salinger doesn't go insane at the end of World War II, we don't have The Catcher in the Rye. Um, you know, so 
was it something that he consciously did or was it a result of all of these experiences that were channeled through him and came out in the form of fiction? I often say when I'm writing, the job of an author is to take all of the chaos in your mind and make order on the page, but you don't get to control what the chaos is. You know, it's the experiences that you have in life and it's, it's um, you know, whatever chemicals you, you were born with or whatever, you know, DNA you were born with, that's the chaos that comes and you try to make that order. But, you know, it's a question of whether how much control do we have or is it just determined by our life experiences. I think another way of asking that question is to say, well, what happens afterwards? I mean, you know, you finished your books. Uh, Edward, your book is part of a trilogy, so you're in a slightly different position, but... I'm very interested in what happens to these fictional characters that we create, that we can, whose presence we can feel, whose voices we can hear. We have to, you know, we feel we have to hear the voice before we feel we're really getting the character right. What happens afterwards? You know, when you finish your book, what, do those voices go away? Do you still hear Matt talking to you? Do you still hear Bartholomew you know, writing to Richard Gere? It's funny because every time you say Matt, I think you're talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> so like, it's very odd. Um, you know. For me, it's, it's interesting. When I sold Silver Linings to Forrest Josh and Giroux, we got a movie deal with the Weinstein Company, I, I was over the moon for you know, about a couple weeks. And then I went through a, a six-month period before publication where I experienced intense anxiety and depression like very, in a very serious way. And I didn't know at the time um, that when you finish an, an artistic endeavor, a lot of times there's a, a postpartum you know, a depression. I don't know how it is for you, but... Uh, a lot of my artist friends, w once they publish, the publishing day, you know, you, you put on a face and you go out and you're happy, but um, a lot of my writing friends go into a deep depression after that. And I think the reason why is because when you're, you're alone in a room creating art, you're an artist and you're channeling this thing and you're very engaged with it and it's yours. It's very personal. And when you send it out into the world, it's no longer yours anymore. And so... The, the Bartholomew you hear when you read my book is not the Bartholomew that I hear. I can't listen to my audiobooks. They're done beautifully. The performers are wonderful, but I don't hear the voice that I heard. It's not authentic to me. And, it, and it's very, in many ways, difficult to watch the movie adaptation as well. As David O. Russell did a wonderful job, and it's a great film, but it's not the voice that I was hearing. So it's, it's hard to kind of let go of that and transition to the next voice. I don't know if that's the way it is for you. Well, I, I haven't got rid of them yet. They're still here. There's, there's, there's no getting rid of them. I'm, I'm two-thirds into it. Some of the characters have gone, and I, I do miss them terribly. Um, and, and I feel like sometimes I have the sort of reverse thing. You know, will you please go away? Um, do I have to have you again? But, but actually, for, for my first, my, the, the other two books that I wrote, I do miss those characters terribly and actually one you know is 10 years old that, that book and, and, and it's about a guy who earned his sort of living as a, a, a you know living s sculpture you know those dreadful people you see keeping still and you go stop um, but I miss him yes well, yes boom yeah and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I but I miss him terribly he was the first well character I ever wrote and I and I want to get back to him and he he was first person and and I kind of I'll never I'll never get rid of him and, and he yeah horrible <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, spending that long with a the character, they inhabit you, you inhabit them in some way, don't you? So I suppose, yeah, I think Matthew and I will be together for a little while, yeah. Plus, of course, you, you know, doing things like this, it kind of brings it to life in, in some way. But I kind of echo your point that in 
there's that moment when you release it. And for me, that was very early in the process, really. It was the moment it was kind of sold. And then when like, all of the editorial work from that point on, for me, like, it made the novel better, I'm sure, and I had a very good editor. And, um, but, but actually, from that point, it became a very different exercise. It became a kind of creative writing exercise, in a way. And actually, the, the novel, like, for me, finished, was the one that I submitted. And that was, that was sort of the end of the story for me. So. I feel the same way. Exactly, yeah. We've been talking about hearing voices, and when you mention that to most people, they look quite alarmed, to be honest. I, I work with people who hear voices all the time, and I sometimes get people's kind of stigma and reactions you know, echoed back at me. People get very uh, distressed by the idea uh, that the, there are these experiences, uh, and they're very horribly misunderstood. They're usually associated with very severe mental illness, such as uh, in, your, in your character's case, um, a kind of latent diagnosis of schizophrenia. They're also associated with many other mental illnesses, by the way, borderline personality disorder, um, eating disorders, um, mood disorders, uh, lots of different psychiatric disorders are associated with hearing vo- voices. But and no psychiatric disorders associated with, you know, like yeah. non pathologised people who hear voices but wouldn't ever have a kind of diagnosis in the DSM. Absolutely. So the best es- estimates that we have are some, that something like f- between 5 and 15% of people will hear a voice at some point in their lives. And those people are not mentally ill. They should not be conceived as being mentally ill in any way. A, a rather smaller number of people hear voices quite regularly and they're not ill. They're not distressed by their voices. They don't have any psychiatric diagnosis, nor should they. And those, those numbers are kind of around 1%, which is roughly the same number of the, as, as the people who have a diagnosis of something like schizophrenia. So there are lots of people out there who hear voices, and of course hearing voices is something that has happened throughout history in all sorts of different contexts. It's interpreted culturally in very, very different ways around the world. And I think my final question before we open up to the audience is, are we, by talking about things like writers hearing the voices of their characters, or you know, later next week we'll be talking about people hearing the voice of God, we'll be talking about children hearing the voices of their imaginary friends, are we risking trivialising something that is very, very serious by lumping this all, this all together? Well, I think the key is not to lump it all together, isn't it, actually? So we're not trying to describe everyone's, everyone's experience. I think it's perfectly legitimate to talk about any of, any of those things and you know like in writing our books you know you write a character's experience you're not trying to write everybody's experience who I mean you couldn't do that could you you can't really even do that in a textbook so um, I think that you know as you allude to there there's so many different ways of experiencing this there's as many different ways of experiencing voices as there are voice hearers so so I think it's okay you just tap into one and you do it hopefully sensitively and with respect and that's our job isn't it and I mean I think that's a Great. That's a great answer. As a writer, we can do that. We, we, can, we can do that. We can focus on an individual story. But as people more generally, we do like to put people into categories. We do like to, make, we do like to say things like, oh, if somebody hears voices, they must be dangerous, which is patently untrue, but it's the kind of stigma that is, for example, reflected in the a recent survey of the American media, making a, an immediate connection between voice hearing and, and, and violence. So as, as people, I think we do tend to put things together and put things into boxes and say that if you're hearing voices, you must be really unwell. So w- what are your thoughts? 
my first job um, out of university, I, I worked with teenagers diagnosed um, with severe autism. And I also worked in a lockdown unit at night. And one of our jobs was to take these, these teenagers to um, the Pizza Hut every week and try to have a normal meal. And of course, um, we never succeeded. And we would end up clearing out the Pizza Hut because we'd have to do a restraint. And then um, some of our students would go and eat everyone else's pizza in the, in the Pizza Hut. And, and it, it, these were kids that I absolutely loved. And when this happened, every time someone would come over and say, what are, what's wrong with these kids? What's wrong with them? And what they wanted was some type of label. They wanted some type of diagnosis. And um, it always bothered me because there were so many things right with these kids. And if I said they were diagnosed with severe autism, they would say, okay, like I know everything I need to know about that, that kid. And they didn't. They didn't know anything about that kid. And so when I write my books, um, I very purposely do not label my, my characters. If you watch Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, within five minutes, they're like, Bradley Cooper has bipolar disorder, um, which my character in the book is something very different going on that you kind of have to infer about what's going on. And the reason why I don't do that is because people who don't have experience in the mental health community think that if they have a label, they can know everything about that person. But I always want my readers to experience my characters as brothers, as sisters, as friends, as people first. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, our job as artists you know, is Paul Selleck told me this when I was in the MFA. He said, you know, your job is to promote understanding. You know, I think that's really like our job and to promote empathy. You know, I think that's what's really important. And I think those two jobs are radically different from what, a, you know, a, a therapist or a, a scientist would, would do. And, and so when people contact me and they say, you know, your book resonates with me, and sometimes people ask me for medical advice. And, you know, I'll say I'm not a therapist. I'm a writer. And I'm glad that my book made you feel less alone. You know, keep reading and, you know, contact people in the mental health community. So I think we play radically different roles, you know, and I think that that's important to remember. But the way that we approach mental illness or unusual experiences is something that can be learned from more generally because we're saying let people's stories speak for themselves let's let people speak for themselves and let's not try to put that shoving people into boxes. Yeah, and I think you know for me when I was a teenager dealing with depression for the first time and dealing with anxiety you know when I would read you know like the catcher in the rye like I said this person this is someone that I can identify with I'm not alone in the world and when especially teenagers write me about forgive me Leonard Peacock or Boy 21 or my other books that's, that's the thing they say the most. They say, like, this is a character that I can identify with. This is how I feel. And no one else around me would get this book, perhaps. Or, like, they don't identify because they don't know. But this feels authentic to me. And I think that that's why we go to literature, to feel less alone, to be connected with people. And so um, I think that's the best thing we can do with art. Great. Well, thank you. Um, we've got some time for questions. We have a roving mic, I think, or or one or two. So please wait for the mic to come along. Um, and there's a question right there to start with. Hi, um, a question for any three of you actually. Thinking of the character you've written that's least like you, how did you get into their head and give them depth or get them into your head? <laughs> I, 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 Nanny New is probably least, least like me in my story. She's a, a kindly grandmother. And I'm a horrible grandson, uh, so so nothing like each other. Um, it's interesting. I, you know, I can only talk about this novel. My other writing hasn't been novels. So, um, but in a first-person novel, 
uh, actually all of the characters are being, it's only really Matthew that I'm writing because he's the central character and all of the other characters we meet through how he interprets them. So we never actually get to meet them or, or know them really. We know what he knows of them and what he chooses to, what he chooses to, to share. So uh, yeah, that's my answer. I don't know how close it gets to answering it. That's what I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I try to get the voices of a whole house. So I try to get everybody in it. So there was sort of voices coming up from everywhere. And the second book is supposed to be the voice of a whole sort of borough. And then the third one of the whole city. So trying to do that was a bit of, I'm in the process of doing it. But so getting hold of a character who is unlike me, the, one, of the, the, one of the characters um, in, this, in this book is, uh, is the locksmith of the entire mansion and she doesn't talk to anybody and in fact she's sort of huge and she's got keys all around her on her ears around belts everywhere under her <laughs> armpits you know everywhere and and I didn't know how to do her voice at all and it was just a matter of she doesn't talk to anybody but she writes a <laughs> she writes a letter at one point that they find in a safe after she's been extinguished um, and, and, but then so I had to try and somehow get her voice and it was really difficult because it was trying to force her to speak and she didn't want to but in the end it was just word by word so it was just one word sentences I, Solly, the lock and I thought there we go That's her. <laughs> I, my, my second published novel is called Sort of Like a Rockstar and it's from the point of view of a homeless 17 year old female teenager, and I wrote it kind of on a lark, uh, uh, almost like on a, a dare from my wife, um, and I, I didn't know if it would ever be published or not, and uh, I just wrote it in first person from, you know, the female point of view, and when it was bought by Little Brown in New York, they had me into their office, and um, I started meeting everybody, and people started to say, you do the best teenage girl, like, you do the best 17, I started to think, what does that mean, like, you know, like... <laughs> And my point in telling that story is I think if I had psychoanalyzed myself the whole time and really put a lot of pressure on myself and thought, like, can I get into this voice, it, it wouldn't have worked. Um, and I think with a little empathy, you can really get into anybody's head, you know, and I think we're all human. None of us are that dissimilar, are we? Yeah, I think that's it. Like, we're, all, we're all human, and I think empathy is the key you know, to try to understand. I saw a hand go up. Um, Okay. Uh, this is sort of following on from, from the last question, but in, in a more sort of general and writing way. I mean, how, how do you, I mean, any, any or all of you, uh, how, do, how do you create a character's voice and kind of convey the voice that you hear and create their personality in a way that's distinctive without being too obvious about it? I realise this is a sort of tricks of the trade kind of question, really. <laughs> do you mean how do you write a book? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we tell them the secret? <laughs> yeah, once, it, once it's out, we'll make no more money. You know? I, I think it's, I, you know, I, I'm often asked how to, how to write voice-driven fiction, and I'm at a loss to how to explain it. Um, you know, and I, not that I consider myself anywhere near, near as talented as, as, as Coltrane, but, you know, if I was, it's like asking, like, how do I play, like, Coltrane, or, like, how do I compose, like, Beethoven, like, uh, you know, and I, I'm you know nowhere near as talented as those people. But I think you know what you have to do is find out what's what's in you to tell. Like, what is the story that's in you to tell? What makes you uniquely you? And the thing that I love the most that I hear from people in LA or New York when they read one of my manuscripts, 
Um, I, I, it's never like, is this good or is this going to make a lot of money? Like, what I want to hear is, this is an authentically Matthew Quick novel, you know? So, like, they recognize my style, my brand. Well, they call it a brand, but my voice. Um, and, and that's when I know I'm, I'm on the right track. And I don't think anybody can really teach you how to be you. Like, that's just kind of a process that you find out after writing, you know, drafts and drafts and but drafts. But maybe that's a really good starting space. point to be you, isn't it? To let well, it come yeah. from, rather, yeah. you know, to just let it come from that and your own experiences. You've got so much to mine there yourself, haven't you? Uh, certainly for the first book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I teach uh, creative writing in, in Texas and one of the things for, for the students is just to express themselves and see what comes out and I think you're absolutely right. Mm. You'll slowly you'll slowly things will appear and you'll notice of all the things that appear the things that interest you most and suddenly you're sort of on your way by just sort of leaping into it. I also think the best creative writing teachers are the ones that, that encourage you to, to, to find that own voice. Like I've taken Great creative writing classes. Um, we were talking about Justin Cronin before. He's my undergrad teacher. He's wonderful. And I've taken classes from people that are trying to teach me how to write, like Raymond Carver or you know whatever big name. And and whenever I've been in those classes, I just shut my notebook because I know I can't learn anything from those people. You know, and uh, it, it takes a leap of faith to to be you and to put a new voice into the world. And it's very easy to look at. You know, like someone I love, like Murakami, and say, you know, like, of course, like Murakami can write like Murakami, but there was a time when nobody knew who he was, and, you know, he had to quit his bar in Tokyo and, and take a huge leap of faith. Um, and I think that's really, it takes a lot of courage to, to fight for your voice and to, to know it and to get it into the world. I can't remember which author it was. It wasn't me. I wish it was, but I really liked it. Is uh, talking about that with stu- like creative writing students and people starting trying to find their voice and uh, he or she described it as uh, like a dog chasing a, chasing a car and they're still kind of chasing the car down the road and, and the car is the voice and they're chasing it trying to get, trying to get the car, the car's the voice, the car's the voice and only later you realise the voice was the dog so uh, yeah, it's not me, it's good though isn't as it? well done yeah. <laughs> any questions there? I don't want to neglect this side of the room I know we've got a there's a question right over there at the end Sorry, and then a couple more at the back We need more whiskey. Hi. You were talking about writing from your own experience, and there's that old dictum, um, write about what you know. And I was wondering um, what you thought about um, the, the other side of it, writing about what you haven't experienced, such as mental illness. Do you think it's um, that someone who hasn't experienced mental illness can truly write um, truly about something like that? It's, shall I begin? Or? Sure. I, I think uh, it's an excellent question. It's something that was on my mind a lot when writing my book. And actually, you know, um, uh, you know, some people have said outright, you know, people from kind of service user groups, actually, you, you know, that's not it. And you shouldn't have done that. You know, people can have very strong feelings about this. Um, I would reconcile it with myself in, well, to kind of repeat something I said a a, a few moments back, which is, you know, you're not trying to write everyone's experience. You're trying to write your character's experience. Um, And, of course, in writing fiction, you know, it might be a particularly kind of contentious area, but whatever fiction you're writing, you're putting yourself in an experience outside of your outside of yourself, aren't you? Like, I'm not an astronaut either, but I could write about, I could write about an astronaut, so maybe it's, more, it's kind of more sensitive, and it should be, and it demands greater sensitivity when you're you know, writing about these things and to not propagate myths and, and do all those you know, very unhelpful things that do happen in a lot of fiction. 
Uh, but then I think, yeah, we're, we're allowed to do that. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful question too. And for, for myself, I've been... Um, uh, the only way I could actually get myself to write was to write in places that don't exist. So I was running away from any sort of reality. In the first two books, they said in cities that don't exist. In the third one, it's a bit of London that doesn't actually exist. So I was trying to give myself a place of freedom to, to write where I didn't have any, you know, felt that I didn't have any rules so I could express myself in any way I felt fit. But it was just my way of trying to get into a sort of writing space where the characters I created could breathe, but they were, but, but you know, but in, in imagined places. I always tell especially young writers that um, it's not so much that you should write what you know, you should write what you love. Um, and so many young writers start out by writing about what they hate. You know, they want to like attack the world, and you know, hate will only sustain you for so long. But if you love something, you will give to it. And you know, it's not that I love mental illness, but I love people who have experienced mental illness. Um, I've worked with people who I genuinely cared about um, in the mental health community, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um, and so, you know, I feel if you write from a place of love and concern and understanding, um, you, you know, that goes a long way. That having been said, I, I think it's important to say that writing a novel and reading and being an artist, whether you want it to be or not, is a political act. And there are politics always involved. So when you talk about mental health, there are going to be politics. So, you know, I spent many, many post-screenings of Silver Linings of people, you know, trying to politicize Silver Linings playbook. Oh, we didn't show them taking enough meds. We showed them taking too much meds. There wasn't enough therapy. There needed more therapy. Completely ignoring the fact that, you know, it started this wonderful conversation. Um, and so I think that you're never going to escape people criticizing or politicizing your art. I think the only thing that you can do is create art from a place of love and be okay with it for yourself. I think we've got time for one more quick question, and I saw that hand at the back first. Um, I'm curious to know how plot follows from your characters, or on the other hand, if you think of a plot and then think of characters in those situations. I'll go first. <laughs> I, I think plot always comes from action. You know, um, that, that's, that's where we learn... Um, who our characters are by, by what they do. And so for me, I, I start with a voice, and then I listen to that voice, and I try to figure out what that voice wants, and I try to understand what, what the, um, the conflict is. And then once they make a decision about that, they're going to, um, the action is going to follow. Uh, you know, so Silver Linings, people know that best. You know, Pat's in a, a neural health facility, and his mom wants to take him out and bring him home, and he doesn't want to leave. Once he leaves, that creates action and plot ensues. You know, you have um, things there. So I, I feel as though my, my novels are character-driven. They're not really plot-driven. Um, and what that means is, um, you know, it's not like a thriller. It's not a genre. So, you know, when you write character-driven um, literature, you're always going to be thinking about what, what these characters want and what they choose and the consequences that ensue. Yeah, uh, l like you, I feel that when I'm 
writing, the first thing is to get the principal character you know, down so that then I could follow that character going anywhere. And in fact, they could take over the whole thing and almost there'd be no plot that that character would go on and on and on. And there needs to be some way of finding the story in that huge amount of voice. And that is when, you, I, for me anyway, you find yourself actually pushing and, and getting that character to go somewhere before they sort of take over everything. Yeah, that's a, yeah. I sort of ask myself the question, is it about that? Is, it, is, is the book about that? Because actually you can write, like you say, loads of... I mean, the amount of chapters I wrote that went that aren't in, in the book, and actually I think they're quite good, really, and they give us insights into Matthew's life and other things, but they're not what the book's about. And at some point you need to be, I guess, guided by, by that. But I wouldn't so clearly make the... Distinct, again, it's sort of like creative writing course talk, isn't it? This distinction of, and today we would do plot, and today we would do character, but like the idea that you could separate them, the idea that you could separate ourselves from our, from our actions, of course, is um, probably simplifying it a little bit. But, you know, that's part of it. I also think, too, that, you know, we don't live in story arcs. Like, we, we project story arc onto our life. Um, you know, like, as human beings, we, again, like, making order out of chaos. Like, we, we want to make meaning. You know, you, you're born and then you die, and we want to know that things mean things. And I think that that's what we're doing as, as writers as well. So for me, I'm always, I want to be conscious of not, like, making it an artificial story arc, but it comes organically through what these characters really believe in. I think we'd better draw a halt there. Before we thank the authors, which I'm sure you'd want to do most viscerously, I'd like to acknowledge the generous support of the Wellcome Trust in putting this event and the rest of the theme together. We're going to be asking you for your thoughts on the event. There'll be a chance to let, let, let us know what you, um, what you thought, what thoughts this has um, stimulated. Uh, and the authors will be signing their books in the signing tent, which is right next door. Um, straight away, straight after the event. So for now, thank you very much to Nathan Filer, Edward Carey and Matthew Quick. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.